and there we announced uh, some uh, pretty good news regarding a new location uh, that became available for us. During that time, we talked about the details of why we believe uh, it's best for us to go forward with that location. Uh, it's a school in Rosemont called Holy Child School at Rosemont. And uh, after a few weeks of discussing with many of you and, and praying and deliberating uh, over this step, uh, we are going to go forward uh, with this move. Uh, so we'll be finalizing the details this week, and come November 11th, we will be having our first service there at Holy Child Rosemont. So in the weeks to come, we'll be providing more details Uh, more information about the move itself. But until then, uh, please pray uh, for these next few weeks. Please pray for the ministries, uh, pray for the leaders, pray for the school, uh, that we may uh, be a community that shares the love of Christ to them as well. So please pray for these next few weeks. And also, please take time to praise God, to praise the Lord after 127 inquiries we have found a building where we can worship at. So with that in mind, let's pray, let's thank him, and let's continue in our worship through the word. God, Lord, just as we sung, you are faithful always. God, we don't say that only because you give us what we want. You are faithful because you carry out the plans that you have set for your people, for your church God, whether we have the things we want or not, we know we have all that we need in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you are faithful. And Lord, if you gave up your one and only son for us, Lord, we are a people without need. We have all that we have in you. We thank you. May your word now guide us and correct us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, last week, John Applegate continued our series on our church's core values by preaching on how the gospel transforms us in a very specific way regarding addictions. And today we're going to continue our series, and specifically we're going to talk about gospel community. And so from here on out till the next few weeks, until November, uh, we're going to be talking about how the gospel changes and transforms not only individuals, but our communities. And now to do that, I want us to, to go back to Genesis with me. And recount with me the one of the first a record of sin that we have in the Bible. And I'm talking about Cain and Abel, uh, Adam's sons. And if you remember, Cain had such a jealousy over his brother that he took him out into the field and he murders him. And now obviously God being all-knowing, all-seeing, he knows what happens, and so he calls Cain out and he curses him. And if you remember the kind of curse that was bestowed on Cain, it was the curse of him being a fugitive and a wanderer for the rest of his life. And so he is banished from fellowship with God and fellowship with his people, his family. Now it's interesting if you note what happens right afterwards. It says that Cain, he immediately goes and he builds a city, a city for himself, named after his son Enoch. And there we see how how sin, once we see the effects of sin, once we see how we are banished from the fellowship we are to have with God, immediately we try to find counterfeit fellowship. 
this Christian author, Ray Bakke, he writes in his book, the first city was founded by Cain, who after breaking fellowship with God, he needed human community to compensate for lost fellowship. Cain, because of sin, breaking his fellowship with God, therefore went off to find a substitute or a replacement. And like Cain, for all of us too, because of our sin, we neglect the primary source of fellowship we are to have with God and his people, and we immediately turn to these secondary counterfeit forms of community. And for many of us, sometimes these secondary forms of community is all that we have. These secondary forms of community have sprouted in in many forms and in all places. And that's why one author, Brian Larson, he thinks and considers about why people go to bars. And he writes this, a bar is an invitation dispensing a liquor instead of grace escape rather than reality yet the bar is permissive it is an accepting and inclusive fellowship because at the bar you can tell people secrets and they won't tell anyone else nor do they want to the bar flourishes he writes not because most people are alcoholics but because god has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit community at the price of a few beers. You see, it's ingrained in our spiritual DNAs to be in fellowship with God and his people. And apart from that, we see there are only two other options. The first option is to be like Cain and to jump from one fellowship, one community to another, trying to build your own sense of intimacy, own sense of relationship. But at the end of the day, every relationship fails us. Or the other option is to quit altogether and to isolate yourself. And then you slowly start to die spiritually. You become bitter at others. You are incapable of loving people, and you become spiritually lost in darkness. Our passage this morning is from 1 John, written obviously by the Apostle John, and this is what we call a circular letter. And a circular letter means that when John wrote this, he did not just write it to one specific church but to a coalition of churches in a particular area. And it was to be read and preached to these communities that were starting to form. Now, John, this letter was written a little bit later than the rest of the New Testament. It's towards the back, along with Revelation, along with Revelation right? So at this time, these Christian communities have started to form, and like any community, they're trying to figure th- things out. Where to meet for worship trying to figure out the logistics of how their community is supposed to operate, how they are to respond to the suffering and the persecutions uh, by the Roman government and others. And now from this original body of Christians, over time, what had happened was that these smaller factions, smaller groups started to form, not from outside of the church, but from within the church. And these small groups of people they started to stray away from the original correct doctrine and teachings of Jesus and the apostle. And the effect 
that took place was as these smaller groups started to, to stray away from the gospel, that it created disunity and it destroyed the community of the church. And so it's in response to this that the apostle John, he's writing these letters to warn them and to correct them against this false doctrine that was primarily crippling the fellowship amongst the church. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Specifically, we're going to be looking at two false teachings that John is writing against. The two false teachings, and then after that, the remedy, the response to that kind of false teaching. So point number one is, and these are a little bit long, forgive me, but number one, individualistic treatment of truth. He was correcting people's individualistic treatment of truth. And number two, an individualistic treatment of sin. And finally, the response to that, the incredible vulnerability of Jesus. It actually took me 15 minutes to think of those words uh, of how to rhyme and make it all start with I. But the individualistic treatment of truth, sin, and response of Jesus in his vulnerability. So let's look at our passage. Look at verse 6 with me. Here, John writes, If we say we have fellowship with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, these false teachers, they were promoting the idea that they are genuine believers of Jesus Christ without any consideration to how they lived out the gospel. The thinking went like this. Because I believe in the gospel, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that I am now justified in his sight, as we studied in the book of Romans. No matter what I do from here on out, there are no consequences. My relationship with God will never be hindered. I can participate in anything I want to do, licentiousness, sexual immorality, self-centered living, as long as I understand and believe and know the gospel. I have permission to do whatever I want and walk in darkness. And it's to that kind of teaching that John is writing. If you claim to have fellowship with God and you continue to walk in darkness without any real fellowship with the people in your church, then you are a liar and you are not practicing the truth. And let's take some time to consider that last phrase, You're not practicing the truth. Let me try to equate what was happening back then to how it happens in our church today. It goes like this. Say that you've been a Christian for X many years. And you remember back then when you first believed in Jesus. It was that retreat, that missions trip, or whatever experience you had. And from that point on, you were just soaring spiritually just hungry for the word, constantly in prayer, wanting to serve the church, wanting to involve yourselves in the community of believers, and you are just on fire for God. But now it's been a while since those years. And throughout those years, you started to see a lot of the flaws of the church, the flaws of pastors and church leaders and fellow Christians. And over time, a critical attitude starts to rear its head towards others. And as a result, you start to stray away from the first love you have for Jesus and his body, the church, and eventually 
these are the kinds of thoughts that come out. Yeah, I know what the church is trying to do by promoting community groups. I know that the purpose so that we can have deeper relationships with one another, and you agree with it in theory, and yet there isn't much effort to initiate such relationships, nor a desire to commit yourself to the brothers and sisters that God has placed in your lives in the church. We agree with our mouths and our hearts with the truth of what's being taught and the truth of what's being proclaimed, but John is saying you're not practicing the truth. One commentator writes, there is no real fellowship with God which is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. This kind of false teaching comes in the form of, you know, I know what the Sunday message and the Bible study is going to be about. It's going to be about the gospel. It's about how I'm completely forgiven. And yes, there's this anger issue that I've been dealing with for many years against my spouse, but I can always go back to the gospel. I have forgiveness. And you start to become very lax in your struggle with your sin. And you start to think things such as, you know, I know I'm not the most spiritual person in the world. I don't know this Bible as much as I should. I don't pray for others. But you know what? I have the gospel. My place is secure in heaven. And as long as I have that, I'm okay. It comes in the form of not needing to take care of your spiritual life as seriously as we should. That's what practicing the truth means and practicing the truth within the fellowship of God's people. And that's exactly what was happening back then during the time of John's writing. There are these smaller groups of people within the church that had very different views of truth. There was disunity. There are these groups of Christians who said, you know what, as long as you just know, believe, and understand truth, that's all you need to do. It doesn't matter how you live. But John is saying, no. Are you practicing the truth? That's how biblical truth is to be understood. And there's a false assumption here, assumption of how truth is to be understood. Now, I want to make clear what's being corrected. The passage is not saying that Christians are supposed to be perfect in their conduct. Until the Lord comes back and glorifies us in perfection, we will always have sin in us. And he's not speaking against the presence of sin, but rather it's those who who not only acknowledge these acts of sin, but they're okay with it. They're complacent with it. It doesn't bother them anymore. And it's to that the question resounds, Are you practicing the truth of what you believe about loving God and loving others? And does it show within the community that God has placed you in your church? If you look at all the writings of John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Letters of John, Revelation, John likes to use this imagery of light. Remember the song, Light of the World, Step Down into Darkness. And he equates light with truth. The word of God. What is the opposite of truth? You would think it's error, right? Incorrect doctrine. The way that John writes as the opposite of truth is not error, but wickedness. The way you live. Because for John, truth is not something you just know that's correct or incorrect, but truth is something that's expressed and lived out in 
practice. Augustine, one of the most influential theologians of the early church, he writes in this small pamphlet on how you are to interpret the Bible, he writes this. Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Simply put, if you don't show the love that you have for God to others, to God and to others, you haven't truly understood the Bible. Whatever passage you are reading, if that's not being evidenced, you haven't understood it. It's not a matter of just knowing what's right or what's wrong. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul was writing in that famous verse that's always recited at weddings? If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. It's in the context of the church not just between man and wife. Are you practicing what you believe? And does it show in the community of believers? Back in 1860, right when Darwin came out with the evolution of species, it rocked the scientific community. And immediately after, there was a call and a question of how Christians are to respond to this famous work. And so afterwards, in 1860, in June, there took a place in the Oxford University Museum, this great debate, the debate between Christians and evolutionists. And so for the Christians, there was this dominant figure. His name was Bishop Samuel Wilberforce. And he was an impressive figure. He was the bishop of the church in Oxford. And he was eloquent. He was intellectual. He was very persuasive. And on the other hand, there was a man by the name of uh, Thomas Huxley, an undergraduate student, one who still stood strong uh, for Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. Now, when the debate started, the bishop, Samuel Wilberforce, he just went at him. He just piled upon argument against upon argument. He was eloquent. One eyewitness says he was flamboyant even. So expressive with his arguments. And at the end of his speech, Wilberforce, he even says to Thomas Huxley, he says, if you're so confident that we descended from apes, let me ask you, was it from your grandmother's side or your grandfather's side that you're descended as an ape? And to that, Thomas Huxley responded, I'd rather be the descendant of an ape than someone who is as intellectual as you and attack me. After the debate, most people would consider that Wilberforce won. Wilberforce even wrote in a letter to his friend, I thoroughly beat Thomas Huxley. But as a Christian brother, I would say to Wilberforce, brother, you lost. You lost. Because that is not the truth that we believe in. A truth that is practiced, not just known in your mind. At seminary, there are many professors that I respect and admire. I remember one assignment, I had to study Philippians chapter 2 and study all the instances of stars 
shining and where God writes that in the Bible. So I had to do all of this exegetical work, meaning studying what these words mean. And I had such a hard time with that assignment. A few weeks later, I remember seeing a documentary about this elderly Christian woman who was making $2 a day. And as they were interviewing her, she kept saying, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I have the energy to work, that I have the ability to pray. And it was only then that I started to understand what this verse meant. Shine like stars. Do not grumble or complain. And you will shine like stars in the universe against the backdrop that is so dark and people will notice. There's a lot of Bible that I don't understand yet. I know the Greek. I know the exegesis. But yet, when I read verses like 1 Corinthians 12 that says, every single one of you is a member of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? That every single one of us to be a part of Jesus' body, I haven't understood that. How do I know? Because I know I don't love you enough. I don't treat you as such. When I study James 5, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. I have a hard time understanding that because I don't want to confess my sins to you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. I don't understand Colossians 3 that says, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, forgive them just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You can memorize that in and out. But this is a very hard verse to understand because it's very hard to forgive those who hate you. The way that truth is explained in Scripture is a truth that is practiced. The same gospel writer, John, he writes about the account of Jesus on his, one of his last nights with his disciples. Remember, he washes his disciples' feet. If you remember what Jesus says, he says, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you're right, I am. If I then am your Lord and teacher and I wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, a servant is no greater than his master, the one who practices the truth of the gospel. That's the first false teaching John is correct. Number two, an individualistic treatment of sin, of sin. So we see, instead of remaining in darkness, away from the light of God's truth, John writes that in verse 7, if you walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with, and I want to stop right here. Track with me. He says, if we're walking in the light, just as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with, what would you expect for him to say? We have fellowship with God, right? If God is in the light and we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God who is in the light. But what does he write? If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One another. 
And I want to stop right here because what John is doing, he's making a very sharp turn. He's saying, the fellowship you have with God, how well you are doing spiritually is evidenced by how well you're doing with the brothers and sisters in the church. How spiritually you are doing with God in your prayers and in your Bible reading and all of that, as important as that is, what I'm looking for is how often do you pray for that struggling brother in your community group? What he's looking for is how many people in the church know about your sin struggles? That's the evidence that you're walking with God. Not necessarily how much scripture you read, how much praise music you listen to, how many sermons you have in your iPod, but how willingly you're willing to make that phone call and say, how can I pray for you? That's the evidence of your fellowship with God. There's a very sharp statement that John is making. He's connecting our spiritual health with God, with our relationships with people in the church. There were false teachers, and these false teachers, they claimed we have a right, perfect relationship with God, completely apart from their relationship with their brothers and sisters in the church. And the fault is, they simply looked at the individualistic aspect of the gospel. Just simply looking back to their own individual experience of salvation, pointing to how often they read scripture, how much they knew how the church worked, how long they've been a part of the church. And John's writing to them, you boast of your relationship with God. Where's the evidence? How many people know about that sin? How many people know your struggles? How many people know about your dreams and aspirations? The false teachers were boasting of their fellowship with God solely on individual terms. How much they know Christianity. But it's rather the deep relationships that we have with one another. Your commitment to the people in your community group. The amount of time and concern you have for those members. The willingness to put yourselves out there for the lives of your brothers and sisters. That's the evidence of you walking in light. If you take a minute to see why that's so, think about how sin operates. How sin, how living in darkness operates. What sin wants to do is it wants to isolate you. It's very good at creating a false community within social media and TVs and a world of hobbies where no one is involved or vying for your time. It's very good at making this counterfeit fellowship that's simply based on people with similar interests. Oh, you like this? I like this too. The same prejudices, the same ideas, the same hobbies. In the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, if you remember, the veteran demon was giving advice to the younger demon. And in it, he writes, if you can't stop somebody from going to church, do the next best thing. Have them jump from one church to the next, always. Because you're going to get the same result. No fellowship, no intimacy. And he says, that's just as good. What does it take to get from isolation 
to fellowship, from darkness to light. And I think if we consider what John is writing, if you look at verse 9, there's a movement from darkness to light. And that happens when you stop being self-deceived. Stop being self-deceived, thinking that your relationship with God is perfect apart from the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters. And it's when that self-deception is removed and you confess your sins, that's when the shift comes. That's when you walk out of darkness into light. It's that barrier of pride, isn't it? That pride that convinces us that we're better than we actually are. And it's a barrier that exists today. It's the same barrier that existed back then when John was writing. If you remember, in the early church, there are primarily two groups of people in the church. There were the Gentiles and there were the Jews, and they both became Christians. But if you consider their history, they hated each other. Think about the Greeks. How do they identify themselves? We're the philosophers. We're the classical writers. We created democracy, and we are this sophisticated group. And the way that they categorized the world was Greeks and what? Barbarians. Everyone else? Barbarian. Consider how the Jews saw the world. They divided the world into two groups of people, too. You are either a Jew or a Gentile, right? If you're a Jew, then you are the chosen people of God. Specially favored by the one God. And the way that they saw other ethnic groups was one of much pride and much self-deception. They called them dogs. If you look at some of the earliest Jewish writings, in some of the rabbinic commentaries, there's one that says it's not lawful to help a Gentile woman give birth. Why? because you're helping her bring in another heathen into the world. There's another writing that says, if your Jewish son or daughter marries a Gentile, go ahead and begin the funeral, because your son is dead. Do you see how much hatred that these two groups of people had against each other? Why? Because of this pride. There's something about me that's better than you. And that's what creates this unity within the church. And though we might not go to those extremes, isn't that evident in the church today? The reason why we distance ourselves from someone else, because we inherently think that we're better than them. And we label people. He's the spiritual one. He's the annoying one. He's this and this, but I'm a little bit better. And it's that same self-deception, same pride that creates this disunity, and it makes you isolated from God's people. That's why C.S. Lewis says, if you want to know how proud you are, hang out with people. And as you hang out with them, when you observe somebody complimenting another person, listen to your heart. How do you respond? When you see someone else take the spotlight, listen to your heart. How do you respond? Or when somebody makes a jab at you, what's your response? That's how you know how proud you are. That can only happen in community. He goes on to write. That raises a terrible question. He says, how is it that people who are obviously eaten up with pride, that those same people, they can say, I believe in God and be very religious. And he says, the only conclusion is they're worshiping an imaginary God. 
a God in their own minds, that their relationship with God is always great and perfect, and that they have something that they can hold on to in themselves, their gifts, their spiritual uh, lives, something about themselves, and they're holding on to that. And he says, that's not the God I see in the Bible. That's an imaginary God. And you have the best chances of creating this imaginary God in a room by yourself without others. But when you look at the true God of the Bible, you see that in his presence, we are all the same. Sinners deserving his wrath. And there's no pride that can stand in the presence of God. There's an old Canadian hymn song that goes like this, lay everything at his feet everything, your Jewishness, your Greekness, your intellect, your church experience, lay that at his feet. For all of us, he was willing to die, even when you were weak, when we were still without strength, when we were set in our ways, when we were filled with hatred for him. Still, he was willing to die for you and I. And he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. For all men are equal at the foot of the cross. The brothers and sisters that God has called into your lives, into this church, are not in your lives because they match your personality so well, because they complement you, because of the cross, how we're all the same in need of grace. Finally, the incredible vulnerability of Jesus Christ. Now, if you consider yourself a Christian, I don't think you'll push back at what John is saying here. We fully agree that we need to have unity in the church. We agree that it's better to be in deep, intimate fellowship with one another than being isolated. But the problem is, if we as a church, we are in agreement with all of this, how come we don't see it in the church? How is it so difficult to see such oneness that John is talking about? If we are to have relationship with one another, modeling the relationship that God has in his Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the kind of relationship we are to mimic. Where's the disconnect? That's the question, right? Because in any given church, that's the sad reality. And we may be in agreement with this kind of fellowship. What we honestly need is we need a stimulus, something that's going to empower us. And what that is is the incredible vulnerability of Jesus Christ. Let me explain it this way. If you ever observe two people coming together, and think about the progress of their relationship. Any new person you meet, in the stages of that relationship, you start to greet one another, you introduce yourselves, you talk about common interests, your thoughts on this matter and that matter, and your uh, relationship develops to a point. But you will always remain an acquaintance until there's a breaking point. And once that breaking point happens, that's when your relationship gets deeper when it moves past to simply common interest, talking about work or the weather. And what's that breaking point? If you think about it, it's when one person opens up and becomes vulnerable, isn't it? 
When one person finally opens up and exposes himself, the truth of who he is, what he deeply feels, the things that are on his heart, and when one party does that, the other party will recognize that. And now that person has an option. If someone becomes vulnerable to you, you have the option of responding to that or rejecting it. And if you respond to that, that's when your relationship gets deeper and deeper and you establish a connection with that person, an intimacy. One of the shocking cultural things that I had to learn when I moved here to the States was that I found that in America, friends would do this thing where they sleep over at each other's houses. They call it slumber party. And at this slumber party, which is very new and foreign to me, I was always asking the question, why would I willingly sleep on the floor of my friend's house in a sleeping bag when I have my own bed and I can see him in the morning? And I always wondered until I experienced my first sleepover in junior high school. And then after that night, I understood why. Because you know what happens at sleepovers? The lights go out, you're in your sleeping bag, and you're supposed to be sleeping. But then your friend goes, Psst, hey Luke, are you sleeping? <laughs> and you go, no. Are you? <laughs> no. And right here, a beautiful moment takes place. He goes, hey Luke, don't tell anyone, but I think I like Ashley. <laughs> and at that moment, I have power. <laughs> I can respond or reject. And I say, I think I like Hannah. <laughs> and from that moment on, what happens? We become tight. We become best friends who hold each other's secrets to the day we die or until we graduate junior high school. <laughs> that happens in relationship. Consider the relationships that you have, the people that you love the most are the ones who know the most about you. The ones who, to whom you exposed yourself, who've seen you weep, who've seen you at your worst, when you become vulnerable. Joyce Brothers was an American psychologist, very popular in the mid-50s, and she writes, love comes when manipulation stops. When you think more about the other person than about his or her reaction to you. When you dare to reveal yourself fully, when you dare to be vulnerable. I think she's very honest with how relationships work. The love between two people begins when you stop manipulating them, trying to control their response, and you're so concerned about how they're going to think about you, what they're going to do. And when you're truly yourself and you dare to be vulnerable, but that's very hard, isn't it? It's near impossible. Why? Because to be vulnerable to another person means that you have to be exposed. You have to remove all the fig leaves that you've been holding on to to try to cover yourself. Your winsome personality, your success, your money, your intelligence, and to lay that down, that is... That's terrifying, isn't it? Sherilyn Kenyon, a New York Times best writer, she writes, all of us, all of us are afraid of having our hearts carved out 
Because when you make yourself completely vulnerable, you're giving them a lot of power. And living in the kind of world we live today, no one does that. You can't trust anyone with that kind of power over you. The process of being vulnerable and being known only happens when you see the other person take the first step. But what often happens in community is no one takes the first step and becomes a standstill community where everyone is afraid. Everyone is afraid of how others are going to think about them and afraid of their true selves being exposed. Even consider your own community groups. When does it start getting deeper? When somebody finally says, you know what, can you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. Right there. We're so afraid of revealing too much, so afraid what people will actually think if they get to see who I truly am inside. And so back to that point, we agree with how good it is to have this kind of fellowship with one another, but we need a stimulus, something to trigger it, someone to take that first step, and that's the vulnerability of Jesus Christ. Because he took that first step of vulnerability. He said, hey, I want to tell you something. I love you. And I'm willing to show that and practice the truth of what I just said by becoming the most vulnerable thing you can imagine. A baby born to teenage parents in the middle of the most persecuted place that I could be. And I want to show you how vulnerable I'm willing to be to lay down my weapons and to expose myself so that you can see how much I love you. Jesus took the first step of vulnerability when he took on flesh, physically, emotionally vulnerable, the most vulnerable he can get. If you think about what is the most vulnerable thing that you can be in this world, isn't it that? did not come riding down on the clouds with an army of angels before him saying, I'm going to create a new people. He came in the most vulnerable being that you and I can imagine from being the creator of the universe, Lord God Almighty, to being in a manger. And if you're so focused on the first step of vulnerability that Jesus took for you, that's the impetus. That's what we need for us to say, hey, brother, can I tell you something? Can you pray for me? Because what they think of you is secondary compared to what Christ thinks of you. Because Christ already knows you inside and out, and he already accepts you. And you can see that by how he came for you on that cross. And he says, I've known you for all eternity. And Christianity is not about how much you know God. It's how much God knows you. And understanding that. In John 17, Jesus prays to God the Father that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us. The impetus that gets you from having this internal, individualistic view of truth 
an individualistic view of your sin is the vulnerability of Christ. And once our gaze and our focus is on that, that will encourage you to go to that group, go to that brother or sister and take that step. I want to end with this journal entry that I was reading. There was a missionary from this area, Philadelphia. He spent seven years doing evangelistic work in in my country, in Korea, specifically in the red light district in the early 60s. And that was a time when Korea was in extreme poverty. And he later recounts how it was when it first went. He says that he went because Korea at that time was an unreached people group. And he knew that there are many sinners there, many people in need of the gospel, many people who are rebelling against God, and they needed to repent. So he felt convicted as a missionary to go and preach the gospel and salvation and see people turn from their sins to Jesus Christ. And then he writes, the first few years, there was no fruit, no change. And he writes, the young women... They listened, but they never left their cycle of enslavement. No one changed. No one changed. But if you read his journal entries, there was a time when things started to change. And he writes, the breakthrough came when one person began to change. And that was me. He says, as I started to know the lies of these women, I gathered information about them. I heard their stories, heard to see why they got to where they were, to see the sins that were committed against them, not simply seeing them as sinners, but also people who are being sinned against by the darkness of this world. And he writes countless entries of the specific lies of all of these women, and he took the time to get to know them. And he said that the first person that changed was me where he stopped labeling people as sinner or this person or that person, but took the time to get to know the people that God has placed in his life the way that Christ has gotten to know you. If you go to any counseling session, nine times out of ten, they will say that the first person that needs to change is not that person, but you. And once that happens, because of the impetus of what Jesus did for you, that's when people see, you don't have a motive to change me. You don't have an intent to simply have a, a, a motive or an incentive just carried out, but you're here to know me the way that Christ has known you. That's when gospel community happens. My prayer for our church so that we can show the evidence of this biblical truth how we practice the love of Jesus Christ towards one another. And I pray that everyone will no longer be in darkness, be in the light and the fellowship of this church. And as Jesus prayed, may every one of us be one, just as he is one with the Father and the Spirit. Let's take the time to know one another as Christ loved us and became vulnerable to us. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after the message, we take a few minutes and allow you to spend a couple of minutes of prayer to God. And perhaps it's been a long time since you were honest with God, faking 
your spiritual lives, or not being concerned with the sins that are plaguing your lives and your hearts, or being indifferent to the brothers and sisters around you. Join me as we confess and repent. And God, forgive me for not loving others the way you loved me. Let's pray together as a church.